is the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Good afternoon. Jane McNaughton here with you today, broadcasting from Ballarat, a balmy Ballarat, I must say. Coming up, harvest contractors are wrapping up their programs after months of weather delays. And for some, it's been the most drawn-out harvest ever experienced. Meanwhile, authorities are concerned after months of rain and farmers rushing to get hay mowed and bailed that haystack fires could be on the rise in coming months. And one of the Victorian government's proposed water-saving projects under the Murray-Darling Basin Plan has been rejected, with irrigators warning the move could lead to increased buybacks of water from farmland. We'd love to hear from you today as well. 0467 842 722. But first today, while a review is underway into how the retailers conduct business with suppliers, farmers and consumers have been left wondering why prices for fresh, pro- for fresh produce on the shelves remain significantly higher than what growers are getting at the farm gate. Supermarket chains, in particular the two major chains, Coles and Woolworths, have been under scrutiny for, for recording large profits while raising prices substantially, leading to claims of price gouging. Woolworths Group CEO Brad Bandicooti says he is and will continue to cooperate with inquiries such as the ongoing Food and Grocery Code of Conduct review, and including if the ACCC launches its own examination into profit margins and supply chains. We are willing to uh, cooperate with all of the current inquiries uh, that are underway, and that would be no different. Uh, So, yeah, there are, you know, we are very focused on doing the right thing, but I should be clear on what the right thing is, driving great value for our customers, treating our suppliers fairly, including our Australian fresh food suppliers, uh, making sure that the 178,000 people who work at Woolworths have meaningful jobs and careers at Woolworths, and then giving our shareholders, many of them uh, Australian-based pension funds, uh, a fair return on uh, their investments in Woolworths. So it's all about the balance, but it's our job to communicate that and share that effectively with all the, uh, the stakeholders concerned. How do you explain then the big gap between what farmers receive for their produce and the prices that customers pay at the checkout? So, well, firstly, I think we should be quite thoughtful of which category we're talking about for farmers. If you're talking about fruit and vegetables, uh, we are in material deflation and have been for about four months on fruit and vegetables. Now, uh, that is because demand and supply in Australia, it's a domestic product, it's subject to demand and supply. Uh, It is causing, and we can see it, pain for many of those farmers, Uh, but hopefully that's... uh, situation will change as we go into the new year. What is interesting about fruit and veggies, as we drop prices, people buy more. They're actually healthier, but you do get price elasticity. So hopefully that's resolving what's happening on fruit and vegetables. Meat is a completely different scenario where with 7% of Australian meat uh, uh, purchased in this country, we don't buy from sale yards, uh, sorry, we buy directly where we can from farmers uh, and we try and smooth out the prices they get so that they can plan and manage their business effectively. So there is a lead and lag time in meat on price movement. That said, you have seen material price reductions uh, in meat in the last couple of months. Although I need to foreshadow to everyone, and it is a concern to us, but when you look at the, uh, the, you know, the, the, the meat, uh, the red meat beef index, it does look like it's trending up based on what's happening offshore. So these things do flow through. I can show you and check them, and I'm very happy to share them with the Senate and, of course, the ACCC. That was Woolworths Group CEO 
uh, Brad Banducci this morning on AM with Sarpa Lane. A separate Senate inquiry is set to examine supermarket pricing this year, including whether an effective duopoly between Coles and Woolworths has led to opportunistic pricing, price markups and, quote, discounts that are not discounts. The Food and Grocery Code of Conduct Review is due by the end of the financial year. And it will be interesting to see what happens with meat prices in particular after the Country Hour has been reporting over the last few weeks increased prices at the sale yard, especially for lamb. So it's definitely one to keep an eye on. On the text line, we've got one text in saying, to those who routinely shop at Coles and Woolworths, a portion of every dollar you spend at the checkout goes to huge CEO salaries, relentless marketing, shareholders who get the benefits of any profits, and in one year, this would add up to thousands of dollars per household. What do you think? Are the supermarkets taking us for a ride or is it a fair go for consumers? 0467 842 722. The Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. One of the Victorian government's proposed water-saving projects under the Murray-Darling Basin Plan has been rejected, with irrigators warning the move could lead to increased buybacks of water from farmland. Elsie Kennedy has the story. The Borough Creek Floodplain Restoration Project, north of Swan Hill on the Murray River, was one of nine Victorian Murray Floodplain Restoration Projects, also known as Sustainable Diversion Limit Offset Mechanism or SIDLAM projects, proposed by Victoria to meet water-saving targets under the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. It was supposed to save 2.5 gigalitres of water while inundating 403 hectares of floodplain through engineered managed flooding along Burra Creek. This month, the project was rejected by Victoria's planning minister, who ruled it would not deliver overall improvements to the environment. The minister has previously made assessments on four other floodplain projects, which include Hadda Lakes North, Belsai Yungara, Naya and Vinifra, ruling they would bring environmental benefits. The Planning Minister's decision is the latest blow to Victoria's floodplain projects after federal funding for all nine projects was thrown into doubt last year when the Victorian Government refused to sign on to the renegotiated Murray-Darling Basin Plan. Andrew Lay is a dairy farmer at Murrabit and the Victorian Farmers Federation Water Council Chairman. He says he's concerned if the projects don't go ahead, water could be bought back from irrigators. Just a bit taken back by how they've picked just one out of of the five. It just seems like just doesn't make sense to us. You know, we thought all those projects were reasonably good projects. The people we talk to from those areas believe they're, they're reasonable projects to, um, you know, when water's times are tight and dry, you know, all these, they can help these little, these places like that to have, have water when there's not a lot of water about. And so what are the concerns of irrigators if these projects, so Burrow Creek has been rejected now, but it's one of the smaller projects the other projects are still relying on federal government funding to go ahead, and that's a bit uncertain at the moment. What are the concerns of irrigators if these projects don't go ahead? Um, obviously, from not just irrigators, but from the communities where the, where the irrigation water is, um, yeah, that, that means there's many more buybacks or more places um, they've got to get water for. Because um, obviously, these savings for these things are, um, or the less amount of water to do these things are savings for the for the government to be able to um, send water to South Australia as they want. Um, so it, it comes out of the pool, the consumptive pool, that, that would hinder um, the local communities. So I, I use approximately um, 1.5 gigs on our farm a year. So, you know, there's, there's you know, another, another 10, 20 dairy farms that, that won't be able to have water to use or, or um, almonds or, or which, which, 
make profits and ten, send money back into the communities. So uh, it all it all affects communities along the along the river. Environment Victoria Rivers campaigner Tyler Rochi says he thinks rejecting the Burrow Creek project was the correct decision. One thing to recognise here, I think, is that these are really substantial interventions at all of the sites that have been proposed. This project in particular is looking at cutting down or drowning over 300 large trees. Over 100 of those are hollow bearing, and those hollows take hundreds of years to form. So that's irreplaceable habitat. The headline, I think, really is that the impacts here are present at all of these proposed project sites, clearing irreplaceable old trees, drowning vegetation, and really eliminating all of the nuance and variability that are characteristic of those floodplains, essentially turning them into red gum irrigation bays. But I think what's really astounding and the key difference here is that this site, the minister found really a lack of benefits. Um, Experts and locals have been saying there's better ways to get water to these sites. There's alternatives that can benefit the wider floodplain that are far less expensive, that don't require clearing trees. But here the minister found that really the benefits don't do much even compared to a do-nothing scenario. So that's even under the struggling conditions, the really loss of natural regular flooding on the Murray. This project doesn't provide much at all. So I think it really should draw attention to the rest of these sites, thinking about the precautionary principle. What is it we stand to gain and what is it that's really at risk? The Victorian government was hoping that the Barra Creek floodplain restoration project would save about 2.5 gigalitres of water, um, which would go towards Victoria's commitments under the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. Um, What do you think the alternatives are for recovering that kind of volume of water? The easiest way is really to just purchase it from willing sellers. Uh, I know that in the, the last purchase round the government ran, there were more people wanting to sell than the government was ready to buy. So there's no shortage of people who want to sell water um, for a good price. And most of them tend to stay in farming. So it's it's good for everybody. That was Environment Victoria Rivers campaigner Tyler Rochi ending that report from Elsie Kennedy. In a statement, the Victorian Water Minister Harriet Shing, who we have invited on the program, has said, we continue to work on ways to deliver water recovery and environmental outcomes at Burrow Creek and seek Commonwealth funding for the approved sites to proceed and to complete assessments of the remaining sites. On ABC Radio Victoria, this is the Victorian Country Hour. Jane McNaughton here with you today where it is 16 minutes past 12. Uh, On the text line, we've got a message here from Leo saying, G'day Jane, g'day Leo. Uh, A huge ring around the sun is a sure sign of heavy rain. Uh, Leo sent some texts in which do demonstrate that. He's apparently taken those yesterday. The same thing happened the last time when the rain hit on the 17th of January. Thank you for that, Leo. Would love any uh, weather contributions you've got as well. I know for sure in Ballarat uh, it's been extremely hot today and we had a really dry, loud thunderstorm last night with a bit of rain to follow. So uh, plenty to talk about still with the weather. Uh, After the weather today as well from the Bureau of Meteorology, uh, we will be having a CFA representative come into the studio live uh, to have a chat about uh, fire risks on farms. Obviously, it's quite a hot day today. 
it does feel a bit strange in uh, contrast to the flood coverage we've been having recently. Uh, But here we are. It's a hot day again, isn't it? And harvest contractors are wrapping up after their programs wrapping up their programs after months spent working from Queensland to southern Victoria. Lee Burke from BB Harvesting at Donald's northeast of Horsham ran 17 machines this season, covering around 40,000 hectares across three states. He says with plenty of weather delays, it's been the most drawn-out harvest he's ever experienced. We're building a high export company. Sorry about that. There was a little bit of a technical glitch. Here we go. It's been a long harvest. I guess we started in September up in Queensland. It was pretty lean sort of year, so we only sent two machines up there. Um, and we've still got hitters currently going at the moment. So it's probably been our longest harvest we've done, but it wouldn't be our biggest harvest because of uh, Queensland and New South Wales wasn't that great. What sort of uh, area do you think you've covered? Oh, I haven't broke down the areas, but um, we we ran 17 machines. So um, there'd be, yeah, be well and truly over 40,000 hectares, I would have thought. And uh, a large portion of that in Victoria? Yeah, it was. I'd say you'd be 75% of our um, income would have been Victoria this year for sure. And weather-wise, Lee, I mean, everyone got away to a pretty good start, well, at least in Victoria, with with the weather. Uh, but then it seems the rain arrived and barely stopped. So I'm assuming that's been frustrating. Yeah, I guess we're pretty lucky early. I just didn't think it was going to rain till Christmas and... Um, we had a probably 10-day break there maybe mid, mid-December mid and then, um, yeah, from Christmas onwards, it kind of gave everyone a bit of a break over Christmas, New Year, uh, which was good. But looking back at it now, it would have been great to get some good weather early Jan because um, we've still got headers moving down Lake Bolac now when the sun comes out. Yeah, so you've had limited work hours down there, I'm assuming. Yeah, we have, and it gets frustrating for the staff, and I, I do feel for them because uh, they get limited hours, and you go out there and you think it's ready to go. You do a moisture sample, and it comes back at 14 and a half, and you, you might not get going until 5 or 6 o'clock that night, and then that runs into storage issues. It's just a, it's a tough one down there, but um, it's still better that than the alternative, and that's the headers parking up, so we just got to put up with it. And for most of your Victorian jobs, Lee, I'm assuming – pretty uh heavy crops yeah they were really good crops um there was uh yeah canola was pretty good um last year i reckon the canola was probably just as good but this year there's been some amazing wheat and barley crops for sure and uh, have you done anything differently this year in the in the logistics of, of your operation or it's been sort of business as usual um, pretty well business as usual. This year was a lot easier on a logistics side because we didn't have to send so many machines up north and then try and get them back during harvest. So we sort of started um, in the northern Mallee um, and then, yeah, basically just were able to just drive the headers on the road from there so we didn't have to organise trucks and that sort of thing. So, yeah, to answer your question, logistically, definitely a lot easier this year than last. And do you have... The majority of your headers in in one or two places, or are, or are you spread pretty thin when they are all working? For the startup jobs in Victoria, they're sort of all all in groups, sort of together. There's a few um, private jobs that we start that might be just a one or two headed job, but um, as the as you get those first jobs finished, then they sort of go all different directions. So it is a little bit harder to look after when they do start going all different directions, but. Um, that's just the way it goes. 
How about summer crops, Lee? Will you will you do some summer work? Yeah, we're hoping to. So um, we're looking at pro- possibly sending four machines up um, late February, early March up to Queensland and, um, yeah, get on some summer crops, which would be great. Is that something you've done in the past? Um, early stages we've done a little bit, but not a hell of a lot. So we just, um, yeah, I guess it's a, this is the perfect year for it. There's a lot put in up there because of, um, up in that's up in Queensland because of uh, the cotton – probably didn't go in um, as early as they would have liked, so they've held out and they're just going to put in um, sorghum. And and you're thinking, Lee, I suppose everyone talks about the frustration of, of having such expensive headers that do can sit in the shed for most of the year, so you're sort of looking to uh, get the most out of them as possible? Yeah, for sure. You only get a small window to, um, to try and make the repayments and then try to get a profit, so you definitely want to open up that window, and if you can get another go at it, you know, in um, March, April, you're uh, you got to have a go, I guess. Your business has expanded a fair bit in in the years that we've been talking. You've added quite a few machines. Are you still looking at more expansion, or are you happy with where you're at? It's just one of those things that comes with the jobs. If uh, there's more opportunity and you've got the right guys behind you, there's no reason you can't. Um, at the moment, we're not looking to expand, but, um, you know, you never say never. It's just um, the direction businesses go, I suppose. It's just opportunity at the right time. And talking John Deere's, which you've got, uh, obviously, lots of focus on the, the new X9s for the past couple of seasons. Are, are they machines that you're considering? It's one of those things when the newest and biggest come out, you're always like, oh, no, we wouldn't use that. But you end up, it ends up happening. Like the 40-foot fronts come out, then they've got 50s and they've got 60s and the new headers come out. That uh, It will happen, I would have thought, but it's not going to happen anytime really soon. It's sort of for us, I would have thought they need a 60-foot front to go on them to make them work um, on leaner crops. So you'd be picking and choosing where you'd be using them if you were to have them. It's probably just something for the future, but um, not just yet for us. And obviously a very busy few months. Have you managed to or have you got planned a a holiday? No, I haven't had a plan of a holiday just yet, but um, we'll just uh, get this harvest out of the way and get a bit of a planning place and hopefully might be able to get, get a bit of time off at Easter. Sounds good. That was Lee Burke from BB Harvesting at Donald, northeast of Horsham. And to the text line, which is 0467842722, we were speaking earlier about how the supermarket chains, in particular the two major chains, Coles and Woolworths, have been under scrutiny for recording large profits while raising uh, prices substantially, leading to claims of price gouging and calls for further reviews of uh, these companies. We've got a text in here from Glenn saying, if you want to have a lifestyle where you leave others in charge of supplying your food and you buy your food from a supermarket as most people do then there's no foundation for whinging about whatever prices they choose to charge grow your own food buy from elsewhere Coles and Woolworths aren't made to be charities they're businesses and they're meant to be making as much profit as possible we've somehow evolved into a society that has a great sense of entitlement to where the responsibility is someone else's for example the government There was a time when people who couldn't afford everything they wanted either went without or got a second job. That's from Glenn. I do wonder, though, food is uh, an essential service to uh, a point, obviously. We need to have food and water. And also the questions really were around... The prices that farm gates are the prices at the farm gate you're getting for fresh produce, and how that isn't uh, replicated in store. 
but I do understand your point because these are corporations, you are big businesses, I should say. You are right about that. Uh, and we've got another one in here from Daniel. We were speaking earlier about the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. Uh, Daniel says selling water to the government is not good for everyone. Farmers are not able to buy this water because of the inflated price the government puts out. Less water in the water pool is the worst result possible. Thank you for that, Daniel. If you'd like to contribute, 0467842722 is the number to get me on. Now, going back to harvests in the west of the state, two Wimmera farmers have teamed up to build their own facility that will process up to 100,000 tonnes of hay a year for export around the world. Warwick Nibial farmers Scott Summers and Paul Johns, both large-scale hay producers, will supply the facility with their own hay and also buy from other growers. Angus Verley spoke with Scott Summers about their plans. We're building a hay export company. It's very much similar to all the other ones around the area, I suppose you'd say. Just another avenue for farmers. Myself and, and the other owner, Paul Johns, do a lot of hay ourselves. So we developed this business plan oh, about six years ago now. And Scott, I imagine a pretty big project for a couple of um, farmers to be taking on as compared to some of the other more uh, corporate operations. Yeah, I suppose so. But I think you'll find a lot of those companies also started from a similar background where they started and then grew in time to what they've become today. Yeah, it, it is a big facility what we're building. So that's taken some time, but it's probably grown a bit over the last four or five years. Just talk me through some of the numbers. Not sure if you want to divulge the cost, but perhaps the cost, the scale, how much hay it can store and how much you're planning to process. It all comes down to how reliable the equipment can be. The equipment's designed here in Australia by Technographica and built by Schutz Industry. So it's, it's very similar to what the other plants have in them. It's new. We've, we've changed a lot of the hydraulic and electrical systems in it to make it more efficient, hopefully a bit more reliable. It'll run at a rate of up to 28 tonnes an hour at sprint rate. Now, we won't be able to achieve that all the time, of course, but that's its probably maximum output per hour. And what sort of tonnages on a, on a yearly basis are you looking at? Look, it's too hard to work out. It's too early days. Like I said, it's 28 tonnes an hour. It'll sprint at. We'll run five days a week, 24 hours a day with a maintenance period after that. And uh, yeah, that should put us around that, that 100,000 plus tonnes, Mark. And there'll be a lot of storage on site? There's about 35,000 tonnes of storage actually at the facility. Um, and then plus our growers will have theirs. And and yourself, Scott, we've spoken in the past about your own storage, the very significant storage. So there'll be a lot lot kept on farm and then just trucked to site for processing? Yeah, so that the big sheds I have have all been a part of this long-term plan. As with Paul, he has a couple of John Orms big sheds out there too. So that's all part of the whole whole facility. As you mentioned, there are quite a few uh, hay export facilities around now. Um, what sort of footprint will you be looking to, to buy hay across? I suppose you tr- you'll try to keep it inside that 100k radius. Um, we've spoken about a little bit. Uh, it just comes down to season and weather and, and where our growers want to come from. And for, we're talking about processing hay for export, Scott, but just, just for those who aren't familiar, just, just talk me through what you're actually doing in terms of taking a big square bale and getting it ready to head overseas? So the, a lot of people get confused and think we just compact the big bale. Well, it's it's sort of like that, but we, we pull the bale down and re-tease it to start with, um, decontaminate it from any foreign goods, and then it gets re-baled and pressed from there into what we call a sausage and then cut into little cubes and, and packed onto a pallet, pallet format and stacked into containers from there. 
And where, when it does uh, go into containers onto ships, where will it be heading? The markets are Asian, all different countries all over the world. We're developing some new markets, which I'd rather not talk about at this stage. Yeah, so, so similar to what's already processed, but there's a big avenue for hay. There's lots of interest in it, I'd say, out there. Uh, and, of course, hay's a, a fickle game, not just on the marketing side of things, but particularly on on the um, on the weather side of things. Last This season just gone, maybe not too bad with the, the rain coming late, but a couple previously pretty challenging. So is, is that going to be a, a challenge for the business, just navigating seasonal variations in, in production? Oh, I think that's a, a challenge in whatever game you're in, whether it's it's sheep, cows, hay, grain, whatever it is, it's, it's always a challenge. So we'll try to make the most of it when the times are good and, and store when we can and, and then back our growers in when it's tough. That's the aim. And that big workforce, six, around 60 people to employ, uh, have you got many on the books already or are you, will you be uh, looking from now on? Yeah, we're always looking. We've, um, I think there's five in total on the books at this stage plus the contractors in town building the facility. We have a few people that we're looking at to relocate here to Warwick Nabeel, some of the key people. So, yeah, look, we've, we've got the, the key staff to get off the ground, but we're, we're in talks about that all the time. It is a challenge moving forward. When do you hope to be up and running? We're hoping to be commissioning the plan around March next year. Um, so we will be in the active market this hay season. Uh, we're going to hold a grower day sometime in February just to give some information out, and then we'll... Uh, just see how the build goes, but we will be processing 24 hay at some point. That was Warwick Neville, farmer and co-owner of QA, a Scott, a QA Hay, Scott Summers, speaking there with Angus Verley. Uh, Chris has texted in on 0467842722 saying, Jane, what are the chances of those headers returning from up north and bringing fire ants? Uh, very interesting as well. I do, do see that Chris has also messaged in to Jono on the morning's program earlier today saying that any agricultural equipment travelling from Queensland should be fumigated. Thank you for that, Chris. And we've got one in from Alan as well, saying Australia changed to the decimal system 50 years ago. When a farmer's going to catch up, they still tend to talk in feet and inches. Interesting stuff. Alan, if you've got anything you'd like to let us know about on the Country Hour today, you can send us a text on 0467 842 722. It's just clicked over to 29 minutes to one, so we better get some rural news. Good afternoon, Emma Field. G'day, Jane. Let's start rural news in Queensland, where emergency crews are on standby with a tropical low off the north Queensland coast expected to develop into a cyclone today. The system's about 700 kilometres east-northeast of Townsville. It's forecast to cross the Queensland coast late tomorrow between two farming communities of Cardwell and Bowen as a Category 2 cyclone. Senior forecaster Falum Hanafi says residents from Eyre to Mackay are likely to begin to feel its impact from this afternoon. The damaging wind was developing along the coast, particularly along the Whitsundays, that's exposed coast, and then extending more throughout the so the coast there, between, particularly between about Early Beach and Cardwell, once we go overnight and into Thursday. And we've heard recently about the issues being created by Houthi rebel attacks on cargo ships in the Red Sea, which is causing many companies to avoid the region and the Suez Canal, forcing them to take much longer shipping routes, meaning imported goods from Europe may take longer than ever to hit Australian ports. Someone who relies on imports is David White from Biomar, a specialised fish food company near Devonport who supplies Tasmania's salmon industry. 
you know, often you'll wait longer for something because it's been delayed. Uh, sometimes it provides less choice. Um, but there are definitely cost factors that the whole supply chain will, will attempt to pass forward, um, which, again, doesn't help with inflationary pressures because we're not getting a better service. We generally tend to get less choice and, and probably higher cost. So from our point of view, it's not great because it makes goods and services a little bit less competitive. Um, and the question you would ask is, why should they be? Uh, the, the, the reality is that Australia is pretty far away from other places and most of our ports are viewed as secondary ports. Uh, so that unfortunately means that we're probably the first people to bear the brunt of any delay. And still on the Red Sea disruptions, shipments of Australian canola is a major export affected by tensions in the region. Dennis Wozniewski from CBA says new markets in Asia may need to be found for the surplus canola and growers could see lower farm gate canola prices. If you look at the five-year average between 2017 and 2022 for Australian canola exports, around 73% went to Europe and the vast majority would have passed through the Suez Canal and right. the Red Sea. So it all goes towards that biofuel demand in Europe, all of our canola. And what it means is that our competitors, Canada and Ukraine, well, they don't have to go through the Red Sea or the Suez Canal. So we are now automatically less competitive, assuming that there's no resolution there and ships do start going around uh, the Horn of Africa as opposed to through that uh, Red Sea area. And speaking of canola, the oilseed harvest is underway for the crop in Tasmania, but volume is down on last year. CEO of XLD Commodities, John Tuscan, says while the crop quality has been strong, the industry won't be making any production records this season. We started about a week earlier than we did last year uh, for the same time, so that was that was promising. Canola was obviously the first crop to come off and that's been um, 40 to 50% down on volumes from last year. So to be honest, it's been a, a pretty easy harvest for canola. What we have noticed is that the oil content seems to be down a bit this year. So not sure if that's the growing season or there might be other factors in that. But the quality of the canola is really good. Where will that canola end up? So that all ends up locally. So um, we've got the local crusher out of Cressy, Macquarie Oils and a little bit going into Ingham's. This year's crop will be um, quite a large deficit to requirements, so the latter half of the year there will need to be more, more brought across the water. And with the warm weather forecast today, it's a good reminder for anyone with backyard chooks to make sure they stay cool because much like dogs, chickens can't sweat. On the Sunshine Coast, Kenilworth Free Range Farm faces challenges keeping their chickens healthy with recent humidity and temperatures peaking at 38 degrees. And owner Gordon McWilliams says it comes on top of a record flood last year and then it's driest winter. Carrying water on a tractor, he started hosing down their mobile chicken shed where they seek shade from the sun, roost and lay their eggs. What sort of challenges does this heat cause for chickens? The heat reduces production enormously. So we try to stay around about 80-85% production levels with eggs. And at the moment we're sitting at around about 65%. And that's peak season over Christmas with all the holidaymakers up on the coast. So it's a little bit of a disaster, but we just carry on. The big thing is they won't go out to eat in the heat of the day. And they don't drink enough water because the water warms up and they don't like warm water to drink. I hope everyone stays cool today, Jane. And that wraps up Rural News. Indeed, including the chickens and all of our wonderful uh, animals out there on the farm. Thank you for that, Emma Field.
Uh, time in a moment for the weather with Keris Arndt. But just after the weather, we have got uh, fire, Country Fire Authority Dif- District Chief Officer Brett Boatman in the studio with me now. Uh, he'll be answering any questions if you that you have about the summer fire season and we'll hear about what areas of concern are for the CFA during this unseasonably wet summer period. But to take us through the weather forecast, we have got Keris Arndt on the line. Good afternoon, Keris. G'day, Jane. So uh, it's been very hot in Ballarat today and we had some pretty incredible thunderstorms overnight. Is that a forecast for the east of the state for the rest of the day? Uh, not really. It was an interesting uh, area of thunderstorms that moved over kind of southwestern and central, south central Victoria in the early hours of the morning. Um, they're pretty high based, so not a lot of rainfall, uh, a few wind gusts and, um, some, and a lot of lightning. So quite a, quite a light show, but otherwise very little impact um, uh, from them seen at the ground. Um, there are still some showers uh, through northern parts of the state. They're pretty patchy though. Um, and we've got a couple of little thunderstorms up in the northern Wimmera at the moment. But again, unlikely to see much impact from them. Um, they're really not dropping much rain at the ground. Um, it's just a, you know, some gusty winds associated with them. Um, less of a light show, obviously, during the day. As you say, it's um, it's very warm out there. Um, temperatures through <clears throat> most of the state pushing 30 at the moment. Um, up in the the northern Mallee, parts of the Gippsland as well, in particular, are already in the low 30s and expected to keep climbing. So quite a warm day and still quite humid as well, uh, with dew point temperatures in the mid-teens. So still pretty sticky out there. Um, there is a cooler kind of change moving through southwest Victoria at the moment. And temperatures at most centres through the southwest are sitting in the kind of low to mid 20s, so it has has cooled down a little bit through there, and we we'll expect that to move through southern parts of the state today um, before it kind of somewhat retrogresses again overnight. And tomorrow is looking like a pretty similar day with just some some kind of patchy shower and thunderstorm activity around, mainly on and north of the divide. Um, again, another warm one across most of the state, and still quite humid, although. Tomorrow there is a, an actual cold front that will move through, uh, staying from the southwest and slowly pushing its way eastwards and inland. Um, and behind that we get some drier air finally. So we'll see things cool off a bit. And for the next few days after that, Friday and Saturday in particular, temperatures are much milder, much cooler, and again that drier air making things feel a lot less humid. Um, but apart from that, we start to see things warm back up again kind of early next week on Monday and Tuesday. Very little rainfall in the forecast, just the, the patchy showers today and tomorrow and clearing on Friday and otherwise a, a pretty pretty quiet day. We do see high fire dangers in the in parts of the northwest uh, today and tomorrow tomorrow, sorry, Friday and Saturday. And then again kind of coming Tuesday next week we could see some elevated fire dangers. But aside from that, Jane, it's all looking pretty quiet. Well let's hope it stays that way. Hey Karis, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Cheers. That was Keris Arndt, Senior Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology, taking us through our seven-day weather forecast there. You're listening to the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. And Jane McNaughton is here with you today for the Country Hour. It's currently 20 minutes to one o'clock. Authorities are concerned after months of rain and farmers rushing to get hay mowed and bailed that haystack fires could be on the rise in coming months. Spontaneous combustion is usually caused by excess moisture at baling, but even well-made hay can still be prone to spontaneous combustion, as fires can also start due to heavy rainfall events which soaked into stacks. 
This comes as investigations continue into a fire at Garvock in southwest Victoria last week where 200 hay bales caught fire. Uh, in the studio with me now is CFA District Chief Officer for the Western Region, Brett Bowman. Uh, good afternoon, Brett. G'day, Jane. How are you going? Pretty good. Um, now, how common are haystack fires and is spontaneous combustion often the cause? So, our, um, I guess our investigations do determine that spontaneous combustion is the most common cause of haystack fires. In a spring and summer like we've seen where there's a lot of moisture around and potentially hay is getting pressed perhaps a little bit ahead of where it should be, it's not uncommon to see um, stacks catch fire. In our part of the world across Western Victoria, not so much this um, this spring and this summer. We've had a couple of fires. We had a small one at Learmonth yesterday, but before Christmas we had a fairly large one at Beasley's Bridge just south of Sonata. Then, of course, if you fast forward to the 18th of January, there was a large one at Garvok and also at Quambatook up in the north of the state. So um, what we're also seeing from agricultural Victoria this year is that it's not just about pressing hay perhaps a bit ahead of where it should be with too much moisture in it. They're also starting to point back to haystacks that have been subject to heavy rains, whether it's a leaking tarp or whatever the case is that's putting water into the stack could potentially also be the cause of spontaneous combustion of the stack. And, you know, our call out to farmers and, you know, I'm by no means an expert in haystacks and the like, that is, you know, the, the piece from AgVic is to monitor your stack, monitor the conditions, monitor the heat that's occurring in that. And if you've got concerns in that, pull the stack apart because, of course, We'd rather not have to respond to a fire in a haystack. We'd rather the fire not occur in the first place. Yeah, and that advice from Agriculture Victoria is, uh, as it has been for a long time, use a crowbar pushed into the stack as far as possible. Leave it there for a couple of hours. Remove the crowbar to see how hot it is. And then a rough guideline to check haystacks temperature using a crowbar is under 50 degrees. You can handle the bar without discomfort and you can check the temperature daily. Between 50 and 60 degrees, you can uh, handle the bar for a short time. You should be checking that twice daily. Between 60 and 70 degrees, you can touch the bar briefly. Check the temperature of these hay bales every two hours and move the top, move the top layers uh, to improve airflow. And above 70, the bar is too hot to hold, potential for fire. Um, so avoid walking on top of the stack. And I'd say in that situation, would you want people to be calling the CFA ahead of time just in case? Absolutely. Triple zero can you know, get a response from the fire services, even if you've got concerns about um, where your stack is headed. And what we do see is once stacks start to be pulled apart is that's when they, they start to spontaneously combust and catch fire. So certainly call triple zero and get your local fire brigade on the road if you've got concerns. So uh, after weeks of wet weather, we're now experiencing and we heard from the Weather Bureau, it's a hot and dry day today. It sounds like it's going to sort of stay in that direction for the next little while, excluding a few little rain events. Uh, I know in this region, as I mentioned, there were some pretty spectacular thunderstorms overnight. So what are the CFA's main concerns at the moment when it comes to rural fires specifically? Yeah, I think if you look at the, the history over the last few months, we went from, I think, the driest September on record in our part of the world and that flipped to the wettest October on record. So uh, the climate forecast had us heading into a dry, warm, wind, hot and windy summer. That hasn't quite worked out to be the case. I mean, our readiness and preparedness in CFA is the same regardless of where the forecast is at. But I guess the key risk I see from this point onwards is there's lots of green growth and lots of vegetation out there. Harvest, as we've been hearing today, has been massively delayed. We've probably seen less header fires this summer than we have in previous summers. Um, but there is the potential for things to dry out. So uh, a long period of hot, dry, particularly windy weather, um, will take that grasslands and those, those stubbles back into that dry state. 
uh, where, where that ignition potential sort of exists. And on those warm, windy days, we said that fires can get up and run. Even on milder days, mid last week, at just south of our app, we had a fire that burned a little over 30 hectares in an afternoon. A number of fire trucks and an aircraft attended there to suppress that. So I guess, the again, the message for people in rural areas or people travelling into rural areas, particularly coming up to a, a long weekend, is understanding and knowing that risk, the fire danger rating. You heard the Bureau talk about, you know, high fire danger in the Mallee um, in the coming you know, few days. So knowing the fire danger rating, knowing the risk where you are, knowing the risk where you're travelling. And as I went back to before, um, Jane, it's about, uh, you know, the fire that prevented is the one that we... Uh, we're most fond of we'd rather not respond if we have to so those activities that farmers are doing out in their paddocks even though it might be green making sure they're complying with the requirements of the fire danger period so fire restrictions are in force everywhere across victoria still it's about having that you know extinguisher or that knapsack on your vehicle make sure it's in good working order and if it is really hot windy days and you've got things you need to do in your paddocks getting them done early before the the fire dangers um, lift up you're listening to Victorian Country Hour. Jane McNaughton's my name. I'm joined in studio by CFA District Chief Officer for the Western Region, Brett Boatman. Uh, we've also got a text in saying, uh, hi Jane, as a CFA volunteer from Barramine near Yarrawonga, we often attend campfires along the Murray River. We have been asking for several years to make it compulsory for campers to have a fire extinguisher if they are lighting a fire. We really need to push for this. Is it frustrating having to attend similar events like this every time there's a hot day? Yeah, so campfires particularly, and if you talk to Forest Fire Management Victoria across the public lands, that's a concern of theirs. Um, yeah, fire danger restrictions, fire restrictions would say that if you're going to have a campfire, it's for the purposes of cooking and keeping warm, and it should only be the size that you need to be um, to do that activity, and it should be fairly small. You need to have adults on scene, and you actually need to be able to suppress that fire as well, so whether that's water or being able to throw some dirt or the like on it. That is a frustration that we see campfires continue to be a problem in our environment, but again, that's that education piece about people knowing the risk where you're traveling no one wants to go out and have a great time in the bush and camp for the weekend and then leave the fire behind that actually you know does damage to a community or to um you know to a farmer in the neighboring paddock so um that's the message we need to get out there about campers fire is a great tool for keeping warm it's great to sit around the, the campfire and have a yarn in the evening but don't leave that as a legacy for someone else especially coming up to Australia Day weekend. Mm. I think it's a very uh, good message to have. Uh, considering the climactic conditions we were discussing about uh, spring with the bomb declaring it the dry season on record, well, were there some challenges for fire authorities actually being able to prepare for the predicted hot, dry summer? Our preparedness activities are fairly well set well in advance. We do that with our partner agencies at Forest Fire Management, Fire Risk of Victoria, SES and the like, and Emergency Management Victoria. So what we did do last year is we bought our readiness activities ahead. Um, so we did our pre-season briefings, our exercises, our trainings, running of exercise at instant control centres, probably four to six weeks ahead of where we normally were, which meant the conditions were set for when the fire danger period kicked in and for when the elevated fire risk came along. What we found ourselves doing in the latter part of last year was probably looking more into the flooding aspect of things than fires, and we're seeing that continue now. And if I look north to Queensland, there's a potential that Victorian resources could be supporting into Queensland, depending on how the, the cyclone arrangement goes up there at Mackay and Townsville. So... Fire service, CFA is a big organisation. We go to about 33,000 calls a year across the state. Summer is clearly a busier part of the year for us, but there's always that level of readiness that we have any time of the day, any day of the week. Well, good luck if you do end up heading up to Queensland. Obviously, it's a very much a wait and see what happens over the next couple of days. Uh, back in Victoria, though, uh, you were mentioning earlier that you've been, uh, to me before you came on air, that there's some permits that are now available for people burning stubble in the west of the state. Is that right? 
Yeah, so during the fire danger period, as we get towards the, the latter half of that, usually into May and uh, sorry, into, into March and April, we'll allow what we call Schedule 13 permit for landholders to burn primarily stubble um, to let them get their you know that paddock ready for next year's crop. Because of the the climatic conditions this year, because of the wetness and the like, and, and the green fuels, um, in very limited circumstances in the Western District, we're starting to allow Schedule 13 permits under very strict conditions to be available. And that's about landholders coming to us saying that they're looking at spraying out paddocks or spraying out stubble to kill the, the underlying green growth in there and they want to burn that stubble in the next handful of weeks. So um, we don't want to get in the road of agricultural practices, but equally um, the use of fire out there in the landscape, the natural environment is an important tool, but it's also a tool that needs to be treated with the utmost of respects. So that's why we have strict conditions around that. So across the west of um, Victoria at the moment, certainly south of Ararat, you'll see some permit burns potentially start to happen in the next couple of weeks. Our permit system now is a digital system. It's, on, it's online, it's very agile. So it enables us to issue a permit for a finite period of time. And equally, if we see conditions and, and risk change in the landscape, we can withdraw that permit uh, pretty quickly as well. But I know we've had a number of farmers contacting our district offices right across the west and southwest over the last handful of days saying, when can we have a permit to burn? And I dare say as well, because of the um, weather conditions uh, being so great for growth, that weed, weeds could be a real issue both on farm but also on public land too, I dare say. Yeah, it seems to be the case. There's certainly lots of growth, you know, roadsides and, and you know, back in the, in the paddocks and the like in that weed growth. And I guess anyone who sprayed or, or slashed or cut earlier on, I was talking to a farmer at Bland last week who was cutting the same paddock twice, you know, again for hay. It wasn't loose soon. It was just, um, you know, grass hay he was cutting, which he'd never done before. So there is that potential for weed growth and the like as well. Brilliant. Thank you very much for your time, Brett. You're welcome, Jane. That was uh, CFA District Chief Officer Brett Boatman joining us in the studio, having a chat about the hot weather off the back of uh, many, many weeks of colder, wetter weather across Victoria. And native timber harvesting may be over in Victoria, but tensions remain between some residents and commercial plantations. Radical Timbers grows and mills hardwood timber at sites across Gippsland, including Curragin, where the company planned to set up a small quarry to produce gravel for roads within its plantations. But following criticism from neighbours, the company says it will withdraw its Wellington Shire planning application. Neighbours Glenn Todd and Tiffany Harrison told reporter Fiona Broom the proposed quarry site could jeopardise their farming plans. So from the house to the entrance is 40 metres. And that's, so that's where they want to run the trucks through. That's the, that's the proposed truck entrance. Just that gate right there? Do you know exactly where the quarry would be located? Okay, so here's the plan here. Yeah. So see the power lines there? Yep. That's the power lines there. So that, that to the left of that. Now this stockpile, which we've calculated 5,000 tonnes, is seven times the size of our house. That will be located just there, which is 170 metres from our house. But the, it's also the dust. They've put no dust mitigation strategies in at all. So we're going to have uh, machines loading onto that big pile, the pile's going to be there all year with no dust mitigation. Then they're going to be loading off that pile onto trucks. Then the trucks are going to come through here. Uh, so there's a lot of issues with the locals about the heavy trucks on the roads, um, the logging trucks. Um, so one of the things the logging companies are doing is making their truck drivers slow down. So that's for dust and, and wear and tear. So the, the roads aren't suitable for this sort of truckage and it, there's going to be a heavy truck load coming through here. 
I guess for us, so we we moved here to start a small farm. So we're we're still we've been here almost two years. So we're still in the process of getting started. Um, but that is of concern to us directly because of all the dust, and we wanted to start. So behind us in this paddock here is one of the main areas where we'd be growing a market garden, and so that's directly across the road where all this all the dust will be. And so that's not exactly compatible. So plans for a horticultural small horticultural operation yeah. here. Yeah, exactly. So that's one of the reasons we moved out here. So that's that's a, would be a big impact to us. And so do you have any questions or concerns for council or for the applicants? So in, in their planning application, they're claiming that uh, they're putting in three tiny sediment ponds, which are very quite small if you look at the plan. Now this waterway on Boxing Day was moving so much water, there was trees running um, down this property. So it's it's very farcical that they'll even, like, even not wash out. And is the, does the creek run down between your property? You can sort of see the gap just there and then um, just through there. Right, so it's it's fairly close to the creek line. It's, yeah. it's very close. and It's within the, there's a, what is it, the Water Act yep. so, permit? So and it's within that, like, boy, where they're proposing the quarry. So it's basically right on the waterway. So we have spoken to Catchment Management Authority um, and, they, and we know that the CMA are talking to um, Council about this. So it triggers that act as well, which, um, to my mind, the it's not an appropriate site to build a quarry. That was Tiffany Harrison and Gled Todd speaking there. Luke McVoy uh, from Radical Timbers says that while the company was confident their plans wouldn't pose problems for neighbours, they weren't prepared to continue without the community support. Our business has always been built on sort of the community and if anyone in that community has sort of had some issues with something that we're proposing then yeah we'd always love to come to the table and and work through those issues but we haven't really had any constructive dialogue from the other side that is opposing that decision so and they've gone you know sort of to the media and and put out some websites and things like that yeah it's not something that we really want to pursue if that's the road that it's going to go down we like to have constructive dialogue with the community so we've just decided that if that's not going to be what is wanted in that area then we'll go back to the drawing board and what was the actual plan that you had submitted for that old Karajung Road site? Yes, it was a small private quarry uh, that we would be using to extract a little bit of crushed rock for our plantation roads. We own, you know, a lot of plantations through that Streslecky area um, in South and also South Gippsland. So it would just be extracting a little bit of crushed rock per year um, to manage on site for our plantations there. Is your option now to withdraw that planning application or are you potentially looking at other sites across your properties where you can um, set up that quarry? Uh, There is a few other options. For now, we're going to have to go back to what we were doing already, which is um, importing from commercial quarries. And we'll go back to the drawing board and and have a look at all the options and see what's going to work. Radio Timbers always wanted to be a circular economy. So we want to be able to control our own impact on the environment at a private level. So that's something that we always strive towards. So uh, being able to do that is something that we will look at. But yeah, as long as the people around us and, and everyone's in agreement with that. Have you already started the steps of withdrawing that application or is that still to come? Uh, that's still to come, yes. I'm pretty sure. So as you mentioned, there was some criticism from some of the neighbours. They raised some concerns about geotechnical water management and dust management aspects of the plan. But were you confident that your your planning application would have gone ahead without issues for neighbours? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. In all avenues, we want to work with the community, not against them. And that's in everything that we do. So 
um, we were really open to dialogue there on, on what's going to work, but that sort of, yeah, it didn't happen. Um, and that's why we just decided that, you know, it might be easier to look at other options. Will this decision have an impact on how you manage your operations? Well, yeah, absolutely. It will. Um, if we have to go to commercial quarries, you know, where you don't have that control over the environment and, and what you're taking, that's definitely going to have now, a lot of these commercial quarries are a long, lot further away, so there's a lot of transport involved there, there's a lot of costs involved there. So, yeah, it'll definitely have an effect on, on the way we do things for sure. Luke McEnvoy from Radal Timbers, which have plantations across Gippsland, speaking there with Fiona Broom. Now let's head off to the market. First to Hamilton for the land market with Chris Agnew. Good afternoon. Thanks, Jane. There was a dramatic decrease in numbers this week at Hamilton, back to 6,550, a decrease of 26,500 lambs. The quality was good at the top, being predominantly trade weight lambs on offer, a smaller number of heavyweight lambs and export lambs. Not all the processors were present and not all were fully active. Restock and feeder interest was present and very active, securing lambs for the paddock to go back to southeast to South Australia, Bendigo and local areas. The market overall all was stronger by five to eight dollars per head, especially for the very best shorn lambs. Lambs back to the paddock gained twenty to twenty five dollars, being mostly shorn. The best heavy lambs made to two forty four this week, with most lambs to the trade realising between six eighty and seven hundred and fifty cents. Light twelve to sixteen kg lambs made from fifty to 155, lambs to the trade 18 to 22, 127 to 180, then the 22 to 26s, they made from 170 to $220 per head. At Hamilton, this is Chris Agnew reporting for MLA. Thanks, Chris. Now we'll just head down the road to Horsham for the sheep market. Well, up the road to Horsham for the sheep market, this is Graham Pymer. Good afternoon. It's Graham Pymer's report on the Horsham sheep and lamb market for Wednesday, the 24th of January. For the country hour. Good afternoon, everyone. Big drop in lamb numbers to 3,750 and sheep supply also back at 2,700. Quality was again mostly good with all weights penned. User buying group attended and all were keen for a share. With lambs over all categories improving from 10 to $15 a head on last week. Medium and heavy trade weights sold from 170 to 186. Range from 690 to 740 at every 720. Heavyweight sold to 235. Unshorn lamb sold from 104 to 187. Merino lambs from 85 to a top of 170. Restockers paid from 87 to 121 for lambs, a 113 for young first cross ewes. The smaller sheep offering covered all weights, sheep selling to stronger demand to be from 5 to $15 a head dearer. Merino weathers to 125, Merino ewes to 118, heavy crossbred ewes to 110. And Graham Palmer at Horsham from LA. Thank you very much for that, Graham. Really appreciate it. Uh, there's no Lee and Gather cattle today, but there will be a 3,000 head special store sale at Bansdale tomorrow from 9 o'clock. And Hamilton Sheep Market tomorrow is, has also been cancelled. The Thursday Sheep Market in Hamilton will not resume. That's all we've got time for today on the Victorian Country Hour. Thank you very much for spending your lunchtime with me. Right now, it's 1 o'clock. Stay nice and hydrated today. <laughs> 